Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Boy, we have... Fun day in store for us today because we have two of our favorite guests coming back. We, we're having a joint show. We very rarely have these, Kevin, where there's more than very one, one guest. But these two gentlemen are filled with such wonderful stories. We figured, how could we not get them in the same place at the same time? You've seen them before if you took a look at uh, the York uh, a couple of weeks ago. Their wonderful show is it, I want to make sure I get the title right. Is it from Philly, Boston, and Baltimore? In. In, 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 in. That, we already, we already, we already have a song. If you haven't guessed, folks, it's Joshua Ellis and Peter Felicia. Gentlemen, how are you today? Welcome back. I'm, a, I'm alive, I'm a tingle, I'm a glow. <laughs> if you can guess, every allusion to musical theater Peter makes during the course of this conversation, if you get all of them right, we will send you a cookie. He's subtle, too. He'll throw you in yeah, a... you got to watch out. He'll throw you an obscure <laughs> lyric every once in a while. So, gentlemen, first of all, the, the show that you did at the York was so fantastic and so wonderful, and the two of you have such great chemistry together. I'm hoping that that show will go on, but I'm very excited because today you are giving us a whole new show, a whole new topic of conversation between the two of you. And we're, we're sort of the guinea pigs, but we're the very excited <laughs> guinea pigs for this. So both of you have had incredible careers, uh, Josh, what what, do you, what is your line of work for our listeners who, who might not remember? How would you describe what you did? Uh, I was a press agent for Broadway and off-Broadway shows for about 30 years. And some of those shows would include? Uh, Nicholas Nickleby, Into the Woods, 42nd Street, Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music, Franklin Jell and Dracula, Yul Brynner and the King and I. Uh, and, that, and that's just... Kitty Duncan and Peter Pan. And that's just... Just to, just to name a few. And Peter, what is your line of, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, but just in case someone listens 3,000 years from now. Uh, for the most part of the last 52 years, I've been reviewing theater. Um, starting in college, uh, my first review ever published in the college newspaper was for the Broadway production of Hair. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, um, so I go uh, way back. And uh, uh, there were years when I wasn't doing it at all, um, years when I was a high school teacher, among other things. But, um, but for the most part of the last 52 years, that's what I've been doing to make a living. That's, that's fantastic. Now, how did you two gentlemen first meet one another? I remember. Do you, Josh? No. So would you tell us, Peter? 
I certainly shall. Um, it was, <laughs> it was um, either in late 1987 or early 1988. What had happened was there was going to be a banner put up at the TKTS booth. And um, it was going to be for Broadway Cares. And uh, a lot of us met down there to uh, celebrate the, um, the banner going up. And in fact, there was going to be a um, party that night at the Copacabana. And um, so this was a big event. And I happened to be standing next to Josh, who's a very gregarious person. And um, he said, hi, I'm Josh Ellis. And I said, oh, hi, I'm Peter Felicia. And he said, oh, you wrote that article in Theater Week this week um, that um, said, how do you solve a problem like Maria when Mary Martin leaves the show? Um, and I talked about Martha Wright coming in and the things they did with a photograph, which is another story entirely. So we started talking. And that night at the Copa, I'll never forget, Josh came up to me and started singing Happy to Make Your Acquaintance from uh, The Most Happy Fella. And here was the interesting thing. I am telling you, the food at that party was just incredible. Groaning board after groaning board after groaning boat of food, pile tied to the ceiling. And yet, we didn't eat anything that night because we were so busy talking about all the shows we had seen. I in Boston growing up, he in Philadelphia growing up. And that was the start of our uh, perfect relationship. <laughs> That's one point there, folks. That was one point on that. <laughs> I love that. So now you two have had interactions with so many stars. I mean, as so many people that, you know, we, we have idolized for years upon years upon years. So let me ask you, what was the first time for both of you, you both met someone and said, oh, my God, I'm so starstruck. I don't know what to say. My tongue is tied. Let's go in alphabetical order. <laughs> Mr. Ellis? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, there are two kinds of meeting celebrities. There's the meeting celebrities before you're in the business, and then there are meeting celebrities after you're in the business, and you're actually on a professional level with them. Um, my sister and I, growing up in Philadelphia, would go backstage at virtually every show that we saw. So the early ones were like, Beatrice Lilly and Tammy Grimes and Robert Preston and Sammy Davis. And that was us with autograph books going into dressing rooms. So that was one area. It's the Schubert Theater in which just, oh, okay, let's say with high spirits, I was 15, just turned 15, my sister was 11. And we would say, we'd like to see Miss Lilly, please. And they'd say, well, hold on a moment, please, and wait. And then Miss Lilly had like an assistant who came down and brought us up up to her dressing room. So it, there was no, you did not, there was know not much to do about it. I mean, we didn't know when we, we, we weren't famous children or attached to anything. We were just kids. And I guess they, they didn't think we were much of a threat. So we just went up the stairs. And after a while, I mean, there were only like five theaters in New York and I mean, in Philadelphia. And we knew backstage really well because like when anyone can whistle was there, you know, the Forest Theater in Philadelphia was built and they realized just before the opening mm -hmm. that they hadn't built dressing rooms. So when they did Anyone Can Whistle, I remember very specifically going down to the basement and everyone's were dressing room were just curtained off. So it wasn't like a room that we met Angela Lansbury, it was like a curtained off area. And we thought, oh, it's like it, we're like meeting her in a tent mm -hmm. as opposed to like Robert Preston at the Schubert 
who was in a really lovely dressing room, which we had been in before because we had seen D. Lily there. And we, it, it, it was the same rooms. So we just went. That was it. It wasn't, it, it wasn't the big deal was meeting them. The big deal was not just getting backstage. And okay, so, so you asked me the question, like who, who was like, okay, the first one I, I had to deal with professionally, I guess was Lawrence Olivier. And uh, the show was Habeas Corpus. And he had come to see the show. This was at the Martin Beck Theater, 1975, I think. Okay, he comes in and um, he sits down and I say to him, a little spiel that I will then say about 4,000 times in my career. Would you like to go backstage after the show and see the artist? Oh yes, he said, that would be lovely, dear boy. And then um, I said, would it be okay if we take pictures? Oh, fine, fine, no problem at all. And as, as I'm leaving his seat and go back into the lobby, I realized that Joan Fontaine is there, who he had appeared with in Rebecca. And I thought, oh my God, habeas corpus needs every bit of publicity it can possibly get. So I asked Miss Fontaine if she would have any issue with, with, uh, with seeing Olivier and going backstage. Oh, darling Larry, that would be perfectly marvelous. So I think to myself, okay, but I better alert Lawrence Olivier that, um, that she's there just, just in case, you know, that there's any kind of issue. And I go back to his seat, he's sitting on an aisle, and I, I, I lean over and I say, excuse me, Lord Olivier, but Joan Fontaine is here tonight. Would, you, would it be okay if we take pictures of the two of you together? And he beckons me closer to his, his mouth. And I, I, I lean over and, and, and he indicates even more, get closer. And he whispers in my ear, dear boy, she is a cunt. I think, oh, well, probably that means she doesn't want to take pictures. Uh, that would, you know, that would, you know, I mean, if he thinks that of her, I mean, and remember, I would be shocked by any word like that coming from anybody at that time, but out of Olivier's mouth. So um, I say, well, we, we, we don't have to. It's, it's perfectly okay. Dear boy, dear boy, no problem at all. I cannot wait to see her. And so we took the pictures. So it was like, it wasn't years, it was years later when I learned that uh, that word is actually used far more frequently in England among theater people. Oh. I mean, unbelievably frequently. And actually, at, a, at certain times, it, 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 it carries a certain charm with it. You know, that, so... It, it wasn't the shocking word that it was to my ears in 1975. Mm. It was a term of endearment. <laughs> if I can find a Hallmark card from 1975 <laughs> with that on it, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so that's, these, are, these are great, Judge. Okay, so now, Peter, same question for you. Starstruck as a civilian and then starstruck as um, a critic and historian. Well, um, 
I'm going to start by talking about an incident that happened when I was student teaching. Uh, yes, and this was in Brighton, Massachusetts, in a very inner city school. And uh, the teacher these kids had was very old. And here I was, 22 years old, and just by being young, they loved me. Well, anyway, um, the, the eight weeks ends, and ironically enough, I'm working at a hotel as a desk clerk in the town right next door, Alston, Massachusetts. And three of the girls uh, who were in the class come in to visit me, and I'll never forget them. Aisha, Shakira, and Nadine. And they were there and we were just talking and um, they were so glad to see me again. I was glad to see them because they were lovely, lovely girls. And in walked Diana Ross and the Supremes to check into the hotel. Well, these girls could not believe their good fortune. I mean, here, here were the <laughs> women that they idolized. They had their records. And I am telling you, whatever you hear about Diana Ross, Diana Ross and the Supremes that day remembered only mm, six, seven, eight years earlier when they were these teenage girls. And as a result, they talked to them for about 15 or 20 minutes. They were in no hurry to get to their rooms. Of course, they signed autographs and all that. They asked them what they were going to be when they grew up. All those questions that you would hope people would ask, but indeed they did. And I, again, I've heard the stories over the years, so have you. Um, I'll be a character witness for Diana Ross and the Supremes anytime as how extraordinary they were. So that's my pre-story. In terms of when I was starting out um, interviewing people, what I remember best was uh, Robert Shaw. He was doing a movie version of The Royal Hunt of the Sun. Um, a play by Peter Schaffer, and now there was a movie version. And I was writing for my college newspaper. And uh, <laughs> he had been announced to be the leading man for the musical Her First Roman. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, so everybody's asking about the movie. Everybody's asking about his film because it's, it's mostly film critics. And I said, you must be very excited about doing Her First Roman. Uh, the Broadway musical of Caesar and Cleopatra. And as it turned out, he had just been told the day before that Richard Kiley was interested in the part and they were going to use him instead. And I'm telling you, he just erupted with bile about the producer and all the director and all that kind of business. And I wasn't prepared for it at all, at all, because good Lord. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that a celebrity could let down his guard like that and really come down into brass tacks, but he did. Yeah. But he did. You know, Josh, when you were when you were mentioning the shows that you worked on earlier, things like, you know, Nicholas Nickleby and Into the Woods, mm -hmm. I didn't hear you say me, Jack, you Jill for for some reason. I heard that that title was not in that description. Can you tell us a little bit about that show? Okay. Me, Jack, you Jill. I, I actually went back to IBDB because it 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 is the worst show I ever publicized, and it is not more famous because because and I, to my mind, I did not see Moose Murders, but I can't ma imagine a show being worse than Me, Jack, You, Jill at the Golden Theater um, in 1976. Um, it closed during previews, uh, so that in point of fact, the critics never saw it. So if the critics had seen it, they would have said, this is the worst show ever. But how do you know you're working on the worst show ever, okay? It's a show set on the stage of the Golden Theater. 
So you're in the Golden Theater and it's set on the stage of the Golden Theater. And it's about three women who have lunch on the stage of the Golden Theater. They are the mother, the wife, and the girlfriend of a man who has been killed. And at this luncheon, they, they are delivered three packages. Uh, the mother gets a package with the man's head. Uh, the wife gets the heart and the girlfriend gets his uh, penis. Uh, and they're all nicely wrapped up in boxes. The three ladies, Sydney, the girlfriend was uh, Lisa Kirk and the wife was uh, Barbara Baxley. It was, okay, this is a show where the actual, the actors literally spoke to the audience as if they were in a theater and they would say things like, this is quite awful. We have to just close the curtain and send the audience home. <laughs> and people would say, right on, Lisa, why didn't you tell us earlier? So that people were talking back to the actors during the show. So at, there was one Wednesday matinee where Barbara Baxley, who I did not know at all well, said, can you give me a hug? I said, sure. And I gave her kind of a, a kind of cursory hug. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. I need a real hug. And I, I gave her a real hug. And she whispered in my ear, there was so much hate coming from the audience that I need to be fortified by a hug before I can even walk on stage. So you, you, you know it's, it's bad when you see that. Um, mm -hmm. there, would be, there was the time where uh, a rat goes across the, uh, the, supposed to go across the, uh, you know, the, the fly space. And um, Lisa Kirk happens to have a gun in her, wall, in her pocketbook. And she takes out the, the gun and shoots the rat. And the rat's supposed to just drop on stage. But of course, at one performance, she shoots the gun and nothing happens. So the bit of business about the rat being in the middle of the stage means absolutely nothing. So they skip that part. But about 15 minutes later, plop, the, 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 the rat drops on the floor. So, <laughs> and the producer was Adela Holzer, who was a very rich producer and she, she died a few months ago and she was certifiably crazy. I mean, she was spent jail time because she was um, doing like those Ponzi schemes that got involved with Broadway people. Was she Senator had... Joe, right? That was like the, the oh, show. Yeah. That she, yeah. So right. Senator Joe, <laughs> um, I'm walking home one Friday night uh, along 8th Avenue and while the marquee says Kenny Loggins and celebrate me home, um, there are, which had closed weeks before, the lights were um, on and there was a crowd of people underneath the marquee. I had no idea what was going on, but I went and um, joined the crowd. And there was a ticket taker, but uh, I just thought I'd try to walk past him. And, uh, but he stopped me and said, do you have a ticket? I said, do you need one? As if it was the strangest question in the world. And, and he said, yeah, of course you need one. So I said, fine. 
I went to the box office. I said, ticket for Felicia. They pulled out a big wad of ticket and just handed me one, and that was that. Now, I have no idea what I'm about to see. I mean, no idea. So um, they hand me a playbill, and the playbill um, is split diagonally on the cover with two logos. One is for a show called Senator Joe, and the other one is for a show called Return of the Nimrod. And these two shows were going to be done in repertory. And so now at least I know one out of two is what I'm going to be seeing. I don't know which one, but I'm still having this unique experience of going into a theater, having no idea really what I'm going to see. Well, it was Senator Joe. And by the time, Senator Joe, by the way, refers to Senator Joe McCarthy, the witch hunter guy who caused so much trouble in the 50s and caused a lot of people to lose a lot of time and money because of the blacklist and reputation too, for that matter. So um, it was really god awful, especially when there was the scene that took place in Senator Joe's stomach. So you had these backdrops of this bloody, bloody um, inside of his stomach, really lots of blood, um, drips of blood on, on the, um, on the backdrops, um, covering the stage, both the wings too. I mean, so, and out came, uh, two performers known in the playbill as fatty acids and they danced around in Joe, um, stomach. Well, you know, one act of this was plenty. If I had known it was going to be this much of a bomb that it would never even open, just like me, Jack, you, Jill, no critics uh, ever went, I probably would have stayed. But it was Friday night. I was tired and all that. Now, I wrote in one of my books that this, the marquee was not up. And since then, several people have emailed me the marquee that was indeed up. Yes, it was on the other side of the Alvin Theater. Um, I guess it was the Neil Simon then. But anyway, if you were coming up from Broadway up 52nd Street, you would have seen the Senator Joe Marquis. But I was from 8th Avenue on 52nd Street, and so they hadn't put one up there. So it was just one out of two that they had up there. Eight for a half. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so maybe the other one was going to be for the return of the Nimrod. I don't know, which never saw the light of day. Um, but this was, again, O'Horgan, Tom O'Horgan, who had directed Hair. A just quick Tom O'Horgan story, because it involves David Merrick, and people like David Merrick stories. David Merrick, for people who don't know, was a great Broadway producer, perhaps the greatest Broadway producer in the 20th century. And his shows included Gypsy, 42nd Street, Hello, Dolly. Okay. Um, the very last show at the old Helen Hayes Theater was a play called I Won't Dance, directed by Tom O'Horkin. And it is customary in the theater that after the final, the final run-through, you do your photo call. That always happens. And after the first, the final run-through, I'm sitting in the theater with Martha Swope, the renowned photographer, and um, Tom O'Horgan wants to give the cast notes. And I think, well, okay, fine. You know, it's, it's only 10 o'clock, and we have till 5 of midnight, so uh, that's fine. So the note session goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it's 11 o'clock. It's 11.15. It's finally quarter to 12. So I have exactly 10 minutes to do a photo call. And I say to David Merrick, Mr. Merrick, I can't possibly do a photo call in 10 minutes. And he said, it's longer than the show's going to run. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that turned out to be true. You know, yeah. uh, what I want to ask, Josh, all right, so Oliver Haley wrote I Won't Dance. His first Broadway yeah. show, First One to Sleep Whistled, opened on February 26, 1966, and closed on February 26, 1966. His second show, Father's Day, opened on March 16, 1971, and closed on March 16, 1971. I Won't Dance opened on May 10, 1981, and closed on May 10th, 1981. Three shows, each of which ran one performance. Did he ever discuss anything about that one performance um, run of each of these shows? No. <laughs> I would not be scared. Okay, okay. Uh, very quick thing about, about I Won't Dance. It was truly terrible. And Douglas Watt, who was the critic at the New York Daily News, tapped me on the shoulder as he was walking out and said, Oh, do you owe me? And I thought, ooh, I never heard that from a critic. And um, it was the last day of that season. And there was a show that opened in the afternoon, a show that opened at night, and then the season was over. And then there was another show that opened after the Tony cutoff date. The reason the show opened after the Tony cutoff date was because the producers involved with Lena Horne, the lady and her music, decided, okay, let's just wait till the whole season is over and then we can open. There will be less pressure. It will be just, it'll just be a totally different feel for this from the season and the craziness of the last week of the Tony Award season where every, there's a show opening every day or, or two. So, um, so two Days after I Won't Dance, um, I see Doug Watt again. And there I am handing him tickets to Lena Horne, the lady in her music, uh, the, the critic's performance, which I hasten to add was the best performance of that show she ever gave. Wow. I mean, as great as every other performance was, that critic's performance was the peak. And when he left, he said, I know two days ago I said, you owe me. I had no idea that I would be returned with a gift of such magnificence. Oh, wow. Thought, Isn't that sweet? That is very sweet. That's really, really great story. Um, Peter, um, could you tell us about Diana Rigg, the, the Diana Rigg uh, story? Because it's, it's a, it's... Well, what had happened was I was um, going to uh, interview Diana Rigg at Symphony Space at 8 o'clock uh, on a Monday night. And I got there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because I wanted to see the lay of the land and uh, where everything was and what the stage would be like and all that. And what was amazing to me was how many late middle-aged men were already in line for an 8 o'clock show at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because they grew up with that TV series, The Prisoner, and they thought Diana Rigg was the, the sun and the moon and the most uh, alluring uh, woman in the history of mankind. Don't forget, I, don't, I haven't seen a James Bond movie in decades, but don't forget Diana Rigg was the only one that James Bond married. I, that may no longer be true, as I say, because I don't know James Bond movies anymore. But certainly um, in the early days of the James Bond movies, she's the only one who landed him. 
Um, of course, she did have to die very quickly, um, but, um, but she did marry him. So that's how alluring Diana Rigg was. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I get backstage and we're going over, um, she comes in and we're going over this, that, and the other thing about uh, what we should talk about. And I was a little reluctant to bring up Colette. Colette was a musical that uh, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt wrote that uh, played um, Denver and Seattle, and I think that was it. Maybe it went to San Francisco, but anyway, it closed out of town. A tremendous disappointment. And I said, do you want me to bring up Colette, or would you rather I not? And she said, um, oh, no, 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 bring it up. Listen, I mean, truth to tell, that was my fault. I just could never find the character, just could not do it. I, I tried so hard, but it just eluded me. So we get out there, and I said, um, uh, Colette, that musical you did, uh, can you talk about that? She said, yeah, you know, Harvey uh, Schmidt and Tom Jones could never find the character. So <laughs> suddenly, it wasn't a case of her not finding the character when she was in front of an audience. Um, you know, <laughs> She's still with us too, isn't she? I, mean, I yeah, love she that is. story. That story makes me um, laugh so much. It, it's so show busy, really, when you come it right is down to it. So show busy. You're right. The surface and then the real truth underneath. Kind of like Lawrence Olivier. Uh, guys, I, I'm going to throw a name at you both. Uh, and we can go Josh and then Peter. But I think just saying the name is going to trigger a little bit. Uh, the name, and he was a previous guest, rest in peace, uh, John Simon, uh, who is a, you know, a polarizing figure, a, a critic, some might say, he might say, and, and he was for <laughs> many, many, many years. Uh, and of course, we've had in, numerous interviews with actors who, it can be 20, 30, 40 years later, they can still recite the line that John Simon mm. said about them in some derogatory way. Right. Uh, Rob. And I, I hate to interject, but I think, Kevin, you might agree with me. His interview was probably one of the most bizarre interviews. For us, If, if the not strangest. the most bizarre interview we ever had. What about after, Rob? Tell uh, him after. When, when he asked for train money or he asked for yeah. somebody to go to lunch with him? Yeah, and, and at lunch, he asked the, your assistant to pay for lunch. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. We had an intern who had to pick him up from the train station and then take him to lunch. Um, and the, the intern said it was the most bizarre lunch because all he wanted to do was talk about which actresses had the nicest feet on Broadway. Wow. And so, yep. <laughs> so there you go. Sorry, I, I, that's a question for Josh and Peter, and I just decided to interject myself. No, it gave him so some back time to, to think Josh. a little. <laughs> okay. go, Peter, you go first. Well, my experience with John Simon uh, was a very different one because um, – in the early 90s, I was writing a book called Let's Put on a Musical, which was a guide to high school and community theaters telling them the pros and cons of musicals that they, they might or might not do. And um, there I was uh, going to see any musical that I was going to put in the book, any production anywhere, just uh, so I could see what the difficulties were. And I wended my way to Marymount uh, on the east side, the college, and saw a production of She Loves Me. Uh, directed by Patricia Hogue Simon, uh, who I had heard was John Simon's wife. And she did a wonderful job beyond belief. It was just perfect. All right, some weeks later, I'm at a party at a wonderful place that no longer exists, a beautiful little nightclub called Laura Bell. And um, it's a big party, and I see John Simon with a woman um, standing there talking, and I think, oh, this must be his wife. I'm going to go over and tell her what a wonderful job she did. So I started walking over, and what hadn't occurred to me 
was that she immediately moved away, assuming I wanted to speak to him because she was quote unquote nobody, while he was already rolling his eyes thinking, oh, here's another fool I'm going to have to suffer saying, why did you say such and such about so-and-so when so-and-so was really wonderful? And I thought, this is great. I am going to ignore him completely. It's going to be so great since he thinks, you know, he's the, the big shot and she's nothing. So I went over to her and said, are you Patricia Hoke Simon? She said, yes, surprised that anybody would know or care. I said, listen, um, <clears throat> I went to see a production of She Loves Me, and I thought it was terrific. Oh, thank you. Oh, aren't you nice? Oh, um, and I brought up some specifics about where I thought she did wonderful work, and she was so pleased. And I said, I'm doing this book, and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about what to do uh, with She Loves Me. And she gave me one that actually wound up in the book. And um, so anyway, from time to time, when I went to the theater, I remember vividly at the WPA uh, when um, I think it was on 23rd Street, I think it was Songs for a New World. In fact, you know, she came in and he was with her. Hi, she said, and she hugs me. And again, I'm not saying a word to him. It's as if he doesn't exist. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I said to him, finally, hi, I'm Peter Felicia. He said, I know who you are. And um, <laughs> so there was uh, that type of consternation. Well, anyway, the next year, I see that she's directing The Grass Harp. The Grass Harp is a particular favorite of mine um, that um, I saw first in Providence, Rhode Island in 1967. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, flaws, yeah, but a great score. And I was amazed that she was doing it. And she said, well, the reason I'm doing it is because I got the idea from your book. And so that was really quite wonderful, too, that she had got the book. Of course, I had sent her a copy. And um, so anyway, the thing was, every time I ran into John Simon, he was extraordinarily nice to me. And the reason why is because you know that he's a husband and the wife is saying to him, no, you be nice to that Peter Felicia. He's not like you, you know, he's a nice guy. He writes nice things about people and husband that he was, he had to cower to that and always be lovely to me. And so I saw a very different side of John Simon than most everybody else did. And I will still remember getting a Christmas card from them the first year. Um, it was obviously from Pat because she said, John and I love your reviews. And I thought, honey, maybe you do, but he can't possibly, because I always try to say the best things about people. Doesn't always happen, of course, but I always try to say the best things about people. And, um, and needless to say, he did not. But until his death, he was always extraordinarily nice to me, or else he'd catch hell from his wife. That's well, that's a nice story, story to hear. Yeah. That's a nice story. It's refreshing. So, Josh, how about you? We're, we're, well, what you interacted gonna... with him a lot. Yeah. Two very short John Simon stories. One is that I worked on a play, probably the second worst show that I worked on, called Medea and Jason. I don't know if any, this one actually did open at the, at the little the theater that, on West 44th Street. Um, I'm sure you don't remember it. No one remembers it. It starred the first lady of the Finnish theater, Maria <laughs> Aho, sort of like the Finnish Helen Hayes. But anyway, um, it was abominable. And um, during the critics' performance that John Simon attended, I would say he got up maybe 10 minutes into the show, stood up, and as he was walking up the aisle, said really loudly, this is the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, that's 
should John Sonnen. A sweeter story. Uh, <laughs> Lena Horne won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award as the special event of the season. They could not fit her into any other category, but they couldn't ignore her because they adored her uniformly. I mean, just across the board, rave reviews. And not only did they give her the award, figuratively, they wanted to give it to her really. So they invited her to come to the New York Drama Critics Circle Award party in Saudi, on like the third or fourth floor. And that was the afternoon where I had a completely different view of the critics I've had a view of them before, uh -huh. I had a view of them after, and it literally changed that afternoon at that event. Because obviously they're going to take pictures with her, with her getting the award, you know, and that, that made total sense. But what I was surprised at was that every critic to a man, and I think at that time there were probably only two female critics, said, could we possibly have a photograph with Lena Horne, would that be okay? And I, they meant solo picture. They didn't want to be in a group picture with her. They wanted their own picture with her. Mm -hmm. And so um, you could see that they were both uncomfortable asking and greatly desiring of doing it. And I watched these men who I had a kind of a, a kind of lofty idea of them at, at, at before. And, but they all turned into like little schoolboys. And they were like, would it be okay? I mean, could, could I follow that one? And she was so charming. She actually interacted with each one of them, literally seducing one after another, after another, after another. And eventually, pretty much everyone got their picture. And then it was like John Simon. And it was like, it's so against character to do it you know that it was like, I really do want the picture. I just don't want to ask. Mm. And he's like, you can just see he's in pain <laughs> from not asking. And I said, oh, John, would you like a picture with Miss Horn? And he said, yes. <laughs> and so I brought him over and we took a picture with him. And it was just sweet to see that under a different set of circumstances, he's just like they all turned into jello. You know, they were all sweet and jicky. And after that, it was like, oh, okay, fine. They're, I know who they are now. And that was, it was a great leveling experience. I'm thankful that you both gave us a positive. Yes. <laughs> yes. I must say, I mean, just for the record that it's there. Sorry, Rob. Good. So now I feel like an <laughs> asshole with my story. Because so <laughs> we set oh, it up like oh, that. Great. Oh. Good morning, Mama. Liza, darling. We've got to help the boys it behind the curtain. Oh, Broadway's living legends. Oh, it's marvelous. Well, what, what would they like? Some cream of wheat? No, Mama, they want some money. Money? Well, let's send them a great big bag of money. No, all you have to do is go to patreon.com. You know, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and, and you set up a monthly donation. Money makes the world go around, Mama. Oh, don't I know? Patreon.com. Do it now.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. You know, you've encountered so many celebrities in, in both of your careers. If you could go back, and have dinner with one of them, uh, living or dead, because you felt I, did, I didn't have enough time with this person, or I've thought of questions I've now wanted to ask this person, who would you want to go back and spend a dinner with? Well, I've always wanted to ask Harold Prince a question. And ironically enough, I was walking home from 59 East 59th one night, and I passed the Paris Theater near the Plaza Hotel, and he was coming out of a movie um, with his wife. And I almost asked it. And I know that I would have loved to have had the answer. And that is in 1968, when he was directing the London production of Cabaret, the uh, leading lady was Judy Dench. A lot of people don't know that, but it was. And uh, she was playing Sally Bowles. And Lila Kudrova was playing Fraulein Schneider. Well, that very year, that was February, that very year in November, he was directing Zorba, the musical version of Zorba the Greek. And I've always wondered why he didn't use Lila Kadrova in the role that she had actually originated in the film Zorba the Greek. Um, she, she won an Oscar for it. How bad she, could she have been? And later, when it was revived with Anthony Quinn, she did it so, and won a Tony. So... Oh. I've often wondered why he didn't do that. Um, and it makes no sense to me since he obviously was pleased enough to let her stay in the show and he didn't fire her during rehearsals during Cabaret. So he must have been reasonably pleased with her. And it would have been good press, I would think, to have um, had her come over and recreate her role uh, with songs by Kander and Ebb. And so I've often wondered that. But I will say something else, and that is, this isn't quite the answer to the question you asked, but I will say, if there were anybody that I could have dinner with um, in the history of show business, it would definitely be Thornton Wilder, because um, when, uh, that mind is just so amazing to me. And I'd also like to ask him if he ever wrote a play set in New Mexico, because he wrote one set in New York, The Matchmaker, New Jersey, The Skin of Our Teeth, and New Hampshire our town where's the new mexico play that's what i want to know <laughs> get on it thornton and josh how about you okay i would like to have dinner with marlena dietrich i i met her in 1971 before i was in the business uh she and my grandfather both got awards on the same night from the hebrew university in israel and um because she was marlena dietrich no one was talking to her and I thought, well, I've seen her show on Broadway. I mean, I have plenty of things I can say. So I, I, I walked up to her 
and, and said, um, Miss Dietrich, I'm Mr. Dentrick's grandson. Oh, you are? She goes, oh, and uh, what are you studying? I said, well, I'm, I'm a theater major at, at, in graduate school. A theater major? <laughs> Why are you being a theater major? What, what, what will that allow you to be when you grow up? <laughs> and I said, well, I, 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 I want to be part of the theater, and I'm not sure what aspect of the theater I want to do. And she said, why are you not studying something like chemistry? It would be much better for you as a career. Yeah, and chemistry. It, I said, it doesn't really... Good points, folks. It, it, it they don't really interest me. And she said, it's a good thing. I'm not your grandmother. I would never <laughs> let you do those... The theater? You're studying the theater? <laughs> and that was it. And I thought... Okay, so... Many years later, I worked with people who knew her very well, including Yul Brynner, who had a very famous affair with her, mm. and another woman named Jeanette Spanier, who was a great uh, personality in London and Paris, and lived across the street from Marlena. And they gave me, they filled me in on stuff. And then I would, like, I'd go, okay, so if I had dinner with her now, I could talk to her about things that I've learned subsequently about her. Like Jeanette told me about how they went to look for graves and that Marlena was very concerned about where she would be buried. So they went to all the famous graves in Paris to see, you know, where she, would she like to be buried at Père Lachaise or, the, 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 uh, you know, so that, I mean, that was their relationship. And Yul Brenner certainly had, his version of stories, but I would kind of like to say to her, you know, Will Brender told me quite a bit about you. I'd, I'd like to hear your version, but I obviously never got that opportunity. But sure would like to ask, wouldn't you like to know? Absolutely. Sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's good. I'll tell you one who's still alive who I'd love to have dinner with, and that's yeah. Estelle Parsons, um, because she was one of the most fascinating interviews I, I did. And uh, what we also talked about uh, was how she got started. She was uh, on the um, Today Show, and she was an announcer, and she also had to do commercials. And the way it was, this is the primitive years of TV now. This is in the early 50s. And she said she literally had to look at a clock with a second hand going from 12 to 12. She had to finish in a minute, and she had to actually give the copy that was given to her right before the commercial and edit as she was speaking to make sure it would be a minute. Well, anyway, she had to leave the show for a little while because she was delivering twins. And when she got back, uh, they said to her, okay, Estelle, you're going to Monaco because Grace Kelly is getting married and we want a woman to cover this event. And she said, I can't go. I have twins. I just got, gave birth. You know that. No, Estelle, uh, get somebody to take care of them. We really need a woman on this, and you're ideal for this. You have the personality for it. You, you've got to go. I'm not going. You are going. I'm not going. You are going. Uh, you're going or you're fired. Fine, I quit. And so she quit. Or was fired. I don't know. Um, you know <laughs> I think she said she quit, but that might not have been the case. Anyway, so she decides, okay, 
um, I can't do this. I probably won't have an easy time getting a job at another network because word will spread that I'm not cooperative. I got to do something that's New York centric. What can I do that's New York centric? Well, Broadway. So she auditions and she auditions for a musical and she has a feeling that it's going to be a good show because Ethel Merman's going to be in it and Ethel Merman shows tend to run. So there's nice security and she's very glad when she gets the part. And the show is Happy Hunting. And Happy Hunting is about Grace Kelly's wedding in Monaco. And Estelle Parson plays a reporter who goes over to Monaco to cover the story. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Isn't it? One of my favorite performers uh, ever. I mean, I just think she's such an individual. And we can go back to Susan Johnson because she was very similar. But Tammy Grimes, um, she was uh, very, what that voice, that energy. Um, Josh, do you have, did you interact with her at all? Do you have a story about Tammy Grimes? Uh, Yes, I have a long, I have many stories because, as you know, Tammy was in the original Broadway cast of 42nd Street. Yes. And And she was there for quite a while. So uh, let me tell you a story about Tammy after she left the show. She was very great pals with people who were still in the show. And it was not uncommon for her to stand in the wings and watch the show. And she would just enjoy watching it the same way like you might go, okay, I'd like to go to a museum this afternoon. I'm going to go to see 42nd Street again. And uh, she would hang out backstage. And at one performance, she was standing backstage and they were doing the finale where all the men came out in tuxedos in St. James. And they all get into a position like with their arms outstretched going, Dames, 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 Dames. And at the end of the line was Tammy in a house dress. She would walk from the wings onto the stage and she, won, she was part of the curtain call. So the audience saw her in this house dress next to all these men who were like from tall down to short. And, and she's, she's taking the curtain call like she's, she's in the show. Good for and, her. And no identification or anything. So uh, the stage manager like grabs her and says, Tammy, what are you doing? And said, I just got carried away. <laughs> so it's like... Okay, quick, another one, okay? She called me up after she had left the show. Josh, Josh, I must see Ole Ole. I said, what's Ole Ole? How can you not know? Everybody in New York is talking about Ole Ole. I said, Tammy, I truly have no idea. Can you describe it? Yes, everyone's going to it. It's 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 big and it, it it's 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 somewhat it's like a circus. And I said, Do you mean Cirque du Soleil? Ah, yes, that's it. Cirque du Soleil. That's what I want to see. Can you get me tickets? I said, Well, yeah, it's it's in a tent next door to the Metropolitan Opera House. It's in a tent. What do you mean it's in a tent? I said, that's how they perform. It's a circus in a tent. Does the tent have a box office? I said, yes, Tammy, the the theater, the the tent has a box office. Let me see it. I must see it. So I got her tickets to Olay Olay. What an individual. What a lady. It was was one of the first people I interviewed when Theater Week started. And I was so disappointed because I had been told that the movie of The Boys in the Band 
was filmed at Tammy Grimes' apartment. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to see that apartment. This is so wonderful. And um, Josh knows my feelings for boys in the band. Um, we quote uh, lines from it incessantly. Um, and even when I make an allusion to it, I remember one time I said, that sounds murky. And he said, that comes from boys in the band. And in fact, it does. And it, it just out of the blue, he recognized it. I mean, I, I don't know how many times Josh saw it. Once youth, twice a phase, several times. He liked it. I mean, he saw it a lot. <laughs> anyway, um, I was very disappointed that she had moved and it wasn't the same apartment at all. But anyway, what I had said to her was, I will never forget, you got the biggest laugh I have ever heard in a theater when you were doing High Spirits and you sang in the song Home Sweet Heaven, the Duke of Prussia, I call him Freddie, is living by mistake with Mary Baker, Eddie. Now, that may not sound funny to you, but this was the Boston tryout. And Mary Baker Eddy started Christian Science, which has its home base in Boston. There's an enormous church there, not far from the Colonial Theater, where indeed the show played. And that Boston audience went crazy for that line. And she said that was never in the show. Ironically enough, I heard a recording recently, a bootleg recording of the show, and there was the line right then and there. I heard Tammy Grimes sing it. And I'm telling you, I could take you within a quarter inch of the stage of the Colonial exactly where she sang it. So, um, but that said, the first first row seat in an orchestra I ever bought was for the unsinkable Molly Brown when the touring company came to Boston. And she was beloved because she came from Brookline, Massachusetts. So everybody loved her. And it was a tremendous performance, as you know, it won a Tony. And the best performance I have ever seen in a comedy in the many, many moons that I've been going to the theater was Tammy Grimes in Private Lives in 1969. I judge every time I see Private Lives, I judge it by that performance and nobody even comes close. Never, mm -hmm. never. Especially after they have this knockout, drag out fight in the second act. I mean, they're screaming and yelling at each other and then the two other people, their spouses come in and they're embarrassed that they've been fighting at the way Tammy pulled herself up and said, this is the end, um, was so incredible because you knew it wasn't the end. You know, there was just, these people were going to fight till the rest of their lives. And I am telling you, for the next few weeks, my wife would say to me in the middle of the night, will you stop laughing about this is the end? You woke me up. I mean, it was just uh, probably 5% of our divorce was, uh, was a result of my waking her up because I was still so much in love with this is the end with that wonderful Josh, you do, you know, your imitations of these celebrities are terrific. I mean, you haven't missed yet. Catherine Hepburn, Tammy Grimes, Marlena Dietrich. Um, you've really been, you're on the ball. You should be an impressionist. Uh, <laughs> I don't know my own voice, but I know theirs. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, okay. So now that you've dealt with so many stars and so many celebrities, is there a thing that you find a characteristic that links the good celebrities the kind celebrities from the not so kind celebrities. Is it confidence? Is it uh, talent? Is it self security? What what makes you want to go back to either working for a star or interviewing a star? You know, um, I saw I get a few wholesale when it was trying out in Boston, and I was crazy for this Barbara Streisand, which is I thought how you pronounce the name, and I became such a Barbara Streisand fan as a result of that. The first mail order I ever sent in for a ticket, and you have to send away in those send away in those days, was for Funny Girl, and I'm telling you, I would not want to interview her because I would think she'd be mean to me because she has just done too many interviews. I understand, and by the way, I don't think this is a bad idea. I understand when you interview Barbara Streisand, she brings her tape recorder too. 
Frankly, I think they all should. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Linda Hart, who was in um, uh, Hairspray, when I was interviewing her, I always end every interview with this question. Always. Okay, let's pretend it's the day the article comes out. Before you start reading, you look to heaven and you say, oh my God, I hope he put in the part about, about what? It's a blank check. You can have whatever mm. you want, but tell me what's really important to you. And Linda Hart said, I'd like to see things I actually said, you know, so she'd been misquoted over the years and Lord knows people. And I know when I've been interviewed, I've been misquoted too. So I understand why Barbara Streisand brings her own tape recorder to, um, to various uh, sessions. But that said, I'd really be afraid to deal with her uh, because I really think that she'd be mean to me. And I wouldn't want that to happen considering that I idolized her as a kid. Yeah. So I wouldn't want that to happen. I was crazy for Anne Margaret when I saw Bye Bye Birdie. I saw it 10 times in the first two weeks that it was at the Astor Theater in Boston. I'll blame you. <laughs> yeah, <Damn>. really. <laughs> so uh, I, I will admit Time Magazine had a point when they said, Anne Margaret is not convincing as a 16-year-old girl. No, she wasn't, <laughs> but she was fine for me. Anyway, so the day came when I had to interview her. And I was so glad she was nice and lovely and wonderful and kind and couldn't be better because it would have devastated me if she were to be severe. And she didn't even have remotely the inclination to do that. Not remotely. So, um, so I, frankly, at this point, Rob, I forget what the question was, but that's, uh, that's I think, I, th I think you answered it. I think <laughs> okay, you answered good. it. Scared of Barbara Streisand and you were happy that Anne Margaret was a nice person. Right. That, yeah, that counts. And Josh, what about you? Okay. I think the question really is nice with whom? Mm. Because there are certain people that are really great with the press, but are horrible to deal with otherwise. Uh, and, and, and the reverse. Uh, when people came to see Peter, they were largely on their best behavior. And I know that I have worked with certain stars who people go, she is the nicest person ever. And I think to myself, nice, nice. <laughs> that person would eat her young to do something. I mean, this is, I, she's horrible. And then there are other people who had, like, you Brenner was absolutely terrible with the public. He didn't like to sign autographs. He could be rude to them. If, he, if people came up to him on the street and say, aren't you your Brenner? And he'd go, no, I'm Shirley Temple, you fuck. <laughs> that was not a, an, an endearing way to, to be with the public. He was no. also horrible to the producers of The King and I. He would order them out of the theater. They came to a rehearsal once that I was at in Chicago at the Erie Crown, and he just pointed his finger and went, out! And the producers were like standing there in the aisle going like, he can't be talking to us with a producer. <laughs> and he just holds his finger out, doesn't say another word, just out with the finger. Not the pointing finger, not, not the, the middle finger. And, um, and Eventually, they realized, look, this rehearsal is not going to continue unless we leave the auditorium. So out they went. But then there was the Yule Brenner with his cast, and he was phenomenal to the cast. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you one really brief example that just summarizes it all. There was a little boy in the show who was the smallest child, and he got a lot of extra little shtick involved because 
The youngest child has to be turned around during marches and Siamese children. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with it. But if you work on a show that runs for a long time, the little child grew. <laughs> he, was, he was too big for the role of the little child. And at a certain point, they said to him, well, we want you to still stay in the show, but you will now be a, an older child and we will find a smaller child for the youngest child. And the child was, his name was Kevin, was devastated. Yul Brynner heard about this and asked his mother, Pat, if she would, who was also in the cast as one of the Royal Siamese dancers, uh, would it be okay if he spoke to Kevin? And little dejected Kevin went into Yul Brynner's dressing room, which for some people was a kind of scary experience. And he, he, he came out of the dressing room with this huge smile. And his mother said, well, what did he say? And Kevin said, he told me that I have to be a professional and that being a professional means being as good as I possibly can. And playing the other child is just as important to be professional. But if I stay in the business and stay dedicated to my craft, one day, maybe I can be the crown prince. Hmm. And then he said, but if you stay in the business and you're really good, one day, maybe you'll play the king. So I think it's that that a great just, story. That, that so that's, yeah. that's the Yule Brenner that I loved. And people go, well, he was so harsh. He could be very harsh and he could be very unforgiving. But he, there was, he had such sweetness for those whom he loved. And I was grateful to be one of those people whom he loved. And that's why it was a joy. People would, you know, producers would say to Fred Walker, the associate producer, or to me, will you go in and tell your brand or something? Because they didn't want to have the confrontation with him. It was easier for us to be this, like, we'll be the, you know, he won't shoot the, the messenger. And, and that's what we did. But we learned a lot. Fred went on right after that to produce Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music. And he always says that the lessons we learned from Yul Brynner are the lessons that help us be professionals the rest of our career. Hmm. And there's a line in the play where right before the king dies, uh, he talks to Anna and says, the royal prince has been trained for royal government, meaning that she has given him the tools to carry on. And that is exactly what happened with you and me. He gave me the tools to do everything else the rest of my career. Hmm. That's, that's fantastic. Great. That's great. That's really great. Gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for walking us down memory lane with all of these great individuals. So I want, we wanted to end by asking you, I mean, Peter, I have to ask, is this the longest that you've not been inside of a theater in your adult life? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, by far. By far, it's, it's astonishing um, to, uh, usually I come home every night and uh, put uh, the name of the show, uh, when I saw it, where I saw it, what I thought of it, in a book. And that book hasn't moved, of course, since March 12th. And so, Peter and Josh, I mean, you guys are such theater animals. How are you surviving in this quarantine? What are you doing to keep yourselves busy? How are you keeping yourselves artistically, you know, interested and inclined? 
Well, um, Rob, as you well know, uh, <laughs> yes. I'm working on a no. book with you. <laughs> so that has taken up some time. I have to say that I, um, I, I do wear my mask, but I walk to my girlfriend's apartment every day, which is two miles each way. And I walk as quickly as I can. And I've, lost, 20, I've lost 23 pounds. Oh, oh my goodness, God. Peter. Well done. Yeah. I was yeah. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, so that's, that's been uh, significant to me as well, but also I'm still writing articles here and there and, um, and, and writing 10 act, uh, sorry, 10 act, 10 minute plays, um, for a lot of competitions, because I think that's a fun thing to do. And it doesn't take all that long. It takes more than 10 minutes, but it doesn't take all that long. Great. And Josh, what about you? Cause you also wear another hat, right? Josh, you're a, a pastor. Am I getting the title correct? Uh, I'm a, a, an interspiritual minister. And I'm my, as it were, my field of uh, work is disaster chaplaincy. So uh, a disaster chaplain during a disaster is a very busy man. But it, I also need to have rest periods from that. You know, yeah. they talk about self-care all oh, the yeah. time when you're doing disaster work. So uh, it's podcasts like this that get me through. It's a, a when a a Thursday group that I'm part of that now meets via Zoom. It includes Peter. So that's fabulous. I meet weekly with uh, Gretchen Cryer, who's the director of my show, for my publicist, the Starry Education of a Broadway Press Agent. So that we, we, we stay in touch and we are all blessed to have original cast albums. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, there... Yes, I can't go to the theater, but that doesn't stop me from listening to. I must have. I must. My collection must be thousands now. Oh yeah. And you know, and I try to like match it to my mood. Like, what what do I want to hear at this particular moment? And I I, I go. I, mean, I do like a scan and go like, oh no, I don't want to start with the A's today. Let me start with the F's. You know, and you go, yes, why? That is the perfect song for today. So uh, musicals may not be performing 15 blocks south of where I live, but they are alive and well on West 60th Street. Let me tell you. Ironically enough, um, yesterday, I I always listen to a, a CD while I walk to my girlfriends and back, and I just arbitrarily chose Nick and Nora as one. And then I saw that I had... A demo of You Never Know. Not the Cole Porter show, but Charles Strauss wrote a musical that was done in Providence. And I didn't even know I had it. And I thought, oh, this is great. And ironically, the day before, uh, my girlfriend was mentioning the musical Applause. And I mentioned that I had the video of it. And uh, we watched that yesterday. And the thing is, all three are by Charles Strauss, who has a birthday coming up. So we were celebrating his birthday in advance. I love that. Oh, I love that. That's great. This is this is fantastic. Fantastic. I'm so happy that you guys joined us today. This was great. I hope that once this is over, you put another show on the road, gentlemen. And mm-hmm. and, and this is the idea because it's it's so fascinating. I know we could go on for hours and hours, but I want to say what the follow-up to our show will be. We did in Philly, Boston, and Baltimore about shows that we saw when we were growing up and how we looked at them. And then the next version that we're going to do is going to be about shows that we worked on and what was it like being out of town with them because we were blithe little kids and if there were problems on the show those problems ended as soon as the curtain came down or as soon as we left the stage door but uh 
how about the fact that when you're working on a show and the spit hits the fan and you have to go backstage and deal with the problems like the baker's wife and meadowlark and things like that mm -hmm. well you, you will have two very Workshop happy people here. sitting in the front row that'll be kevin and i please yeah th guys thank you, you are, so you are so both wonderful yes I, I, indeed rob and kevin i mean you make us feel like it's alive now i don't it's That's not right. like we're not waiting for something to happen mm -hmm. what's happening is right here and right now so I hope you acknowledge that yourself, that, that yourself, that you are keeping it alive in a way that aren't we lucky to live in an age when we can do that? That's right. Yes, so, that is uh, very true. It's yeah. truly out of great gratitude that not only will we ask to participate, but we're also able to listen to your other podcasts. They're gifts. Each one is a gift. Oh, geez. Thank you, Thank so you Josh. Thank you, so Peter. That just, you, Peter. just made our day. Yeah. That made our day. I'm going to go listen to Make Someone Happy now from Do Re Mi. That's the <laughs> song I'm going to pull out now, the Josh. Perfect, the perfect song. Yes. <laughs> go on the Kwamina. Yes. <laughs> oh, my mood. Yes, gentlemen. Thank you, you guys, so much. Wonderful. Take care. Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody. Bye, listeners. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's episode and a big thanks to the punchy players jeff marquis who is bringing back lucy betty judy and more to shill for us and a big thanks to our sound editor daniel schwartzberg and social media manager bethany and selecki and don't forget we want more folks to hear these incredible stories and that's where you come in in order for people to find out about us we need lots of ratings on itunes so head on over to itunes search for behind the curtain broadway's living legends click on our logo click on ratings and reviews then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as eliza doolittle on eliza doolittle day or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie baddie bad as annie did in that really weird production in boston where annie dreamt that she was being adopted but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it yes and it was batty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already did Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.